All right. Well, um, we're going to uh, be having a, a guest speaker here this morning. And over the last few weeks, I've had the privilege of introducing a lot of missionaries and a lot of different kinds of missionaries who are a part of the Redeemer Fellowship family. And, and one of our goals in doing so is we want to expand your understanding of who exactly is a missionary. Um, sometimes um, people have had traditionally narrow views of missionaries, and missionaries are people that are over there. Well, yeah, we believe that, but we also believe that missionaries are our calling to go and take the gospel into our very own neighborhoods. So we did a short mini-series in September before we sent out the church plant, and the first message of the series was a call to the entire church that God would help each of us to see ourselves as a missionary. As Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I send you into the world. So we've been sent like Jesus. So during that series, we called up the team that went out to start a new work, a new church plant in Point Pleasant, Redeemer Point. And they're about two months into that church plant, and things are going really well. So God was calling them to go be missionaries to the people of Point Pleasant. Then in the weeks following, we had Freddie, who is a native of the Czech Republic, who has started, by God's grace, a network of church plants in the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And um, we've been privileged to be able to partner with them in that, and we had an opportunity to pray for Freddie. And then last week, we had the Dunells with us. We're over in the Philippines and working amongst orphans in the Philippines. And this week, we are joined by my dear friend, John Scalambro, and his wife, Deanna, and their children. John is a pastor at Jacob's Well in New Brunswick. That's a sister church in our network, the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. John is finishing up his Master's in Divinity at Westminster Theological Seminary, and he's finishing up a pastoral internship at Jacob's Well. He has a heart for church planting and for seeing true diversity and racial reconciliation in the church as a natural impact of the clear preaching of the gospel. Um, He's been spending a lot of time with us over here as he uh, contemplates his future in ministry, church planting, and seeking God's will for him and Deanna going forward. And he's been praying through, uh, as he's been praying through these things, He's been joining us in a practical way. He's been coming out to PLI, our Pastor and Training Institute, and has been uh, jumping in and part of that. He's been spending time studying with us here on Thursdays so that we could get to know him and, and he can get to know us. And I would encourage you guys to just be as affirming as possible because we want to send him out to go plant the Third Redeemer Fellowship Um, soon and very soon. So uh, let them know just what a receptive body you are to hearing and receiving and applying the Word of God. So I'm going to um, ask my friend to come up, pray for you, and um, then we're excited to hear what the Lord would have to say through you. So would you join me in prayer as we lift up my brother John. God, thank you so much for uh, John taking the time away from Uh, really just a busy season in studies and ministry, to be able to come here and open your word with us. I pray that the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart would be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. 
We pray that you would give him clarity into the text and that you would give us hearts to hear and to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 15 through 29. It's a good chunk of text. But before we start, I wanted to acclimate ourselves a little bit to what I'm going to be talking about this morning. So I want us to go back to the Old Testament. And you don't even have to go there. But there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in the sight and their own eyes. Right? This is the drum beat that beats throughout the book of Judges. And it's in the context of the book of Judges that there is a woman named Ruth from Moab. And Ruth comes from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to the land of Bethlehem for the purpose of being with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to take care of her, to be with her. And the, the fascinating part about this book is that might I remind you, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Ruth and Naomi and a man named Boaz show us that there's this remnant of God's people, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of sin, there's always a remnant. There's always a people. Even when there was no king in Israel, there was a remnant. And the reason I bring this up, well, one, my church is going through Ruth right now, so it's on my brain, and I figured, why not just talk about it? But the other reason I bring this up, which is more important, is that there was no king, and God's people were indistinguishable from the world. But as I said, amid the chaos, there was a faithful remnant. This foreigner Ruth her mother-in-law Naomi, and Boaz, the one who provided protection and redemption for both Ruth and Naomi. In our text this morning, John is giving the same warning that has been going out to God's people throughout the ages. Do not love the world. Do not identify yourself with the world. And I think that's key that we understand this identification with the world is a lot of what John's going to be getting at in the text this morning. The only difference between where we are in our text and where we are today in our culture and in our world and in this season of redemptive history is that there is a king in Israel. There is a king in Israel and his name is Jesus. And that's what makes our text this morning so important because even under the kingship of Christ, the church is not immune to the influence of the world. And it's vital to our souls that we guard ourselves and one another from being swept up or, or that, that we guard ourselves from trusting in what the world has to offer as opposed to what Christ gives us. So before we jump into the text, I do want to pray. also want to get used to this mic, and we'll go from there. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for what it means to... Um, to hear from your word, Lord God. And I pray that this morning you'd give us all ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might be drawn nearer to you, Father. Um, This is a text of encouragement, but it's also a text of warning. So I pray that that would rest upon us um, in a a way that draws us near to you, Father. We love you with all of our hearts, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 29, but let's look at this first section, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is the first imperative that we see in the book. And it's a very clear imperative, this this warning, this exhortation, do not love the world. It almost serves as a big therefore moment for us because prior to this, verses 12 through 14, we read this. It says, I'm writing to you, little children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. That's a good thing. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, another good thing. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. What John is doing, he's saying, now in light of all that, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Do not put your trust, your confidence, your hope in the world system that exists around us. This world system that if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where it all kind of started, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and he looks at creation and it's good, but something happens. We all know the story. Eve looks It looks desiring to the eye, right? If you remember the language, there might be some hints back there. I'm not sure. We'll get to it. There's a desire that looks good. It it, it looks like it'll bring some wisdom. So she takes, she eats, she gives some to her husband who's with her, and they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. And what happens to the world? A curse is placed upon the world. And the evil systems and structures that are of this current age start coming in like a flood. Start coming in like a flood. And what John is warning us of, and he's warning the church here in this text, is do not love this world, this fallen creation. And do not trust in it. Do not put your hope and confidence in it. And then he starts to explain why. Because he says that if anyone does love the world, if anyone puts their hope and trust in this system, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the stuff of the world, the stuff of the world, for all that is in the world, he explains a little bit more further what we are looking at when we're dealing with the world. And oftentimes, I think we can read through this passage, and we can just kind of have a surface-level understanding of what's happening here. He says, right, he says, do not, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions. And I feel like oftentimes what comes immediately to the surface is this idea of lust, right? This idea of, like, we can't get involved in lust. And while that's part of what John is getting at here, there's a lot more that he's trying to pile into this quick little three, uh, two verses here. The desires of the flesh. Karen Jobes, she's a, a biblical commentator. She says it's the impulse of human behavior that arises from the natural, even God-given physical needs. So, so there's stuff of our flesh that aren't all that bad. Right? We all need to eat. This isn't a bad thing. These are desires that we have. There's other desires that we have that are not necessarily bad, but what is bad and what's been affected in us by the curse is how we pursue these endeavors, these these needs to satisfy this flesh. 
And I think it's important that we understand that this term flesh, what John is talking about, he's talking about like this, this era of life. There's this fleshly era that was kind of instituted by Adam, and then something happens with Jesus, which we're going to get to in a minute. I don't want to spoil all the fun. John Calvin says about the world, he says, it's everything connected with the present life apart from the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. That's helpful. I'm going to read that again because I thought that's helpful. I mean, it's John Calvin. He's got a lot of helpful things. Um, Everything connected with the present life apart from the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. Apart from the kingdom of God. Again, they're not always necessarily bad, but how we pursue them is often what is drawing us towards sin and away from God. So the desires of the flesh. And then he also talks about the desires of the eyes. Again, there's an emphasis on the temporal here, the temporary. The desires of the eyes, what we can see. John is pushing us toward what is unseen, what is beyond this world, this fleshly era that we're living, this worldly system. He's saying the desires of the eyes, the things that you can touch, the things that you can see, the things that are right in front of you. Is that what we're putting our confidence in? Is that what we're hoping in to provide us with some sort of satisfaction, some sort of um, confidence? And what John is trying to push us towards, he's trying to get at what I prayed and that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. There's, there's, this, there's this world that exists that's beyond the temporal, that's beyond the fleshly. There's a spiritual world that exists, and that is the domain where we find our hope because there's someone seated in that domain ruling over Everything that is around us, Jesus Christ. And we sang about it this morning. I was getting choked up as we're singing, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign shall ever be, all glory be to Christ. And I'm just sitting there singing that. I'm like, and I love that song. I've I've sung that at our church a number of times over the years. And it's just this beautiful reminder that everything around us is actually under the domain of Jesus Christ, who's seated on the throne next to his Father in heaven. And that's what we're getting at here. And that's what John is pushing us towards. There's these desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And and while in and of themselves, they might not be all that bad at their root, but they're not where we draw confidence from. They're not where we draw hope from. But But what he's pushing us toward is beyond that, beyond what we can see, beyond what we can touch, who one day we will be able to touch and put our hands and fingers in the wounds of our Savior Jesus, but it's beyond right now what we can see, right? There's the error of flesh, and then there's the error of the spiritual. He closes this section off with the pride of life, that what we have accomplished on this side of glory has any eternal weight for us. This does not mean that we don't care about this present age. We do, right? We read that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, See, the world that we've been called to to be on mission in is a world that's passing away, but it's a world that God calls us to care about because it's a world that Jesus is seated over and ruling over. And he's calling us to care about these things, but not to trust in these things. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say for God put his trust in the world that he gave his only son. He loved the world. And that's the posture that we would have, that sort of love. A love that is postured toward caring for but not trusting in. And we need to understand that distinction. We need to understand that distinction. The world is passing away, it says in verse, in verse 17, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are we banking on? John is speaking to God's people. These are those who are of the Father, and he's warning them not to love the world. He's warning them to trust in what is seen. Trust in not what is seen, but what is beyond what we see. What do we trust in? What do we trust in? It's election week, right? That's happening this week. There's all sorts of ads all over the place. Political ads are some of the funniest things in the world because literally you watch political ads and you think whoever this person is that they're proclaiming against is the worst person that's ever entered into the world. Like they are absolutely evil. There's nothing, they've never done a single ounce of good from birth. I mean, and we do believe that. We believe that we are all, but man, they're funny. But I think we need to guard ourselves as followers of Jesus. Not that we should not exercise this, this duty we have, this right that we have to cast our ballot. But I think what's really important is that whether or not our candidate gets in, we continue laboring on behalf of Christ, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of what's happening in the political realm, regardless of what sort of pleasures are being put in front of us. There's an eternal confidence. There's an eternal calling that the people of God have that far outweighs anything this worldly system can give to us. Anything this worldly system can give to us. And we need to guard ourselves from trusting in this worldly system to protect us, to provide us with pleasure, with joy. With Not that we can't glean from the worldly system, but, oh, our confidence can't be there. Our confidence can't be there. And I, I love this text because as I'm reading through it all week, I'm studying, I'm thinking... I came more and more to the conclusion that what John is doing, he's trying to encourage the church. He's trying to encourage them. He's giving them a warning. He's like, this stuff exists, and you need to be aware of it. But then right here in verse 18, he says, children. He says, children. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, verse 19, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. It's the last hour. It's the last hour. That means that we're living in the end. And we're going to talk about a little end time stuff, right? Why not? Let's talk about the Antichrist, because that's an easy topic. This is the end. And what John is getting at, he's saying, you've heard Antichrist is coming? You've heard that? How many of you have heard Antichrist is coming? We've all heard Antichrist is coming. If you've been a Christian for more than six months, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. He's already here. That's what John is getting at. He's already here. He says, children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
It's almost like this reverse aftershock thing. Like, like if, if you've ever experienced an earthquake, I've never experienced an earthquake. I don't know why I would use an illustration about an earthquake when I've never experienced it. But it's like these aftershocks that one might experience from an earthquake only before it happens. There are many antichrists who have come. There are many antichrists who have come. And it goes on. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. So what John is saying, we know that we're living in the end because many antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us, which is where it gets scary. This is the point in our passage where it gets a little nerve-wracking. Because what does it say? It says, they went out from who? From us. They went out from the people of God. But they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. See, the people of God, the visible church, as theologians call it, is a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. There's some who are of God, and there are some who are just there. And this was true in the Old Testament. That's why I brought up the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, because there was no king in Israel, and people did what was right in their own eyes. And while they claim to be a part of the covenant people of God, it seems if you read the book of Judges, and if you read the book of Ruth, and some of the stuff happening around Naomi and Ruth and Boaz's story, that there was, there was a bunch of people there that did not believe in Yahweh God. There were, I mean, if you read Ruth, it's like, it's like a, it's, I mean, Judges, excuse me, it's like rated R. It's a rough book. There's, there's insane violence. There's, there's like, it's, just, it's crazy. It's a crazy book. And it proves that even in the midst of God's covenant people, there are those who don't know him. But the encouraging thing, you know what he's saying? That's not you guys. That's not you guys. They left. They left. And what's so interesting is that they left. What we're seeing is that our sin finds us out. Ultimately, we are going to be exposed for who we truly are. They went out from us. Why did they go out from us? They went out that it might, in verse 19, the second half of 19, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Like there's a reason God providentially caused them to leave the fellowship of God's people because he wanted everyone to know those are not our people. Those are not our people. people that God is talking to, the people that John is talking to, those are his children. Those are the church. Those are the covenant members of Christ, and he's encouraging them. He's telling them, he's like, guys, I know it's crazy. I know, I know it's getting nuts in the world right now. I think we can agree it's getting crazy in the world right now. It's been crazy even since then. Children, don't be fooled. Don't love the world. You've seen people maybe you had dinner with. Maybe you've, you've hung out. Your kids have hung out together. Maybe you've gone on vacation with these people. They left. They're not of us anymore. They're gone. They were never of us. And that's the warning he's given that it's so easy. It's so easy to be taken up by this world, to be taken up by what this system has to offer by what this system has to offer. This is why I believe that this text, text is primarily a passage of encouragement. 
John is distinguishing his readers from those who have gone out. He's distinguishing his readers from the Antichrists. This is the last hour. Redeemer, we're in the last hour. And while it might not seem as though Jesus is seated on his throne, ruling over creation, the truth of the matter is that he is. He is. And because he is, we can be confident that while it might appear as though the world is crumbling around us, our lives are anchored to an immovable king. Why do I keep talking about the end times? Why do I keep talking about our ascended King Jesus? Because John says right here in the text that it is the last hour. It's the last hour. And what that means is that Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. He's already ruling over creation. And while it might not appear to be that way sometimes... As we gather together as God's people, as we worship the Lord, as hands are raising up to, to, to proclaim Jesus, and as the gospel's going forth to all the nations, notice how all the nations have heard the gospel as opposed to what it was like in the Old Testament where really that wasn't the case. The, the gospel was really localized to Israel. It kind of went here sometimes. It went there sometimes. But there's something different about this age, this spirit age that was inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is going forth. And it's in the midst of suffering that the gospel goes forth. Be encouraged. There are many antichrists, but it's not you. It's not you. They're out there, though. And maybe there are some in our midst right now. We don't know. Let's look around. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was a joke. No May work. They land. All right. No, I tried. Um, I'll try again next time. But um, but there are many antichrists. But John's encouraging his readers. It's not you. I know you. But be aware. Be aware. They were taken up by the world. They never knew me. They never knew me. Continues to go on. Um, children's the last hour. Verse nineteen. Verse twenty-four. There we go. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the problem that promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. There's a lot of confusing things in that text, so let's try to break this down a little bit. So what did they hear from the beginning? Well, the gospel. It's the gospel that they've heard from the beginning. It talks about that in 1 John in a couple of places, that which you've heard from the beginning, that Jesus is king over all of creation, that through his death and triumphant resurrection and ascension, we have forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God. This is the truth that must abide in us or remain in us. This is what must abide. This is what draws, this is what we draw confidence from, what we've heard from the beginning. When you first put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you heard that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and that as a result, you now have fellowship with God. That's what you heard from the beginning. That's why many of you are seated here this morning. And that is the truth which must remain in you. That is what he's getting at here. Oh, Redeemer, let that truth remain in you. 
Let that beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ remain in you. That's what we sang about this morning. That's what we should sing about every morning. It's the truth that Jesus Christ reigns on high, and in him we have life. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. This is the promise. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There were liars in their midst. And in order to spot what is untrue, John is simply laying out what is true. It's like, I mean, we've heard this before, right? Like, how do, how do bankers tell the difference between counterfeit and, and regular money and real money, right? They're dealing with real money all the time, right? It's not like they have this course in counterfeiting. It's they deal with real money all the time, and the minute they pick up a counterfeit bill, they're like, it doesn't feel right. That's kind of what John's doing here. He's like laying out the truth. He's like, just, just steep in this. So when these false ideas start coming in, you'll be able to pick it up like that. And many of you, I'm sure, you hear false things and you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. And that's, and that's what he's kind of getting at here. He's like, he's like, he says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Like, there are people trying to deceive you. And that's what I'm writing about. I'm writing about them. But, but I'm telling you what's true. I'm telling you what's good. And that namely is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's our context? There were antichrists among them, teaching them incorrectly. They don't need a teacher, the text says. This, I'm reading this text this week, and I'm like, oh, I'm, that's what I'm studying to do. I'm like, they don't need me? I'm like, oh, no. But, but the context is really important. We need to understand, right? There are many antichrists. It says they, that you won't need a teacher. There are many antichrists. What these antichrists were doing, one, they were denying that Jesus was the Messiah, too, they were teaching like these secret messages about Jesus. And what John is saying, no, 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 no. You don't need any secret messages. You don't need any like, like history channel sort of like Jesus. What you need is, and what you have, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that actually teaches you who this Jesus is that you've heard from the beginning. You don't need this extra information. A lot of times we're looking for secrets. We're looking to try and, like, get around, like, oh, but what's, what's Jesus really like? It's like, no, we know what Jesus is really like. It's in this book. We know what Jesus is like. We don't need to have these extra secrets told to us. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of this, teaches us these things. This is not, if, if someone comes to you and says, like, well, it says in First John, I don't need a teacher. So I don't need to listen to anyone. That's not what this text is getting at. Man, we can take the, the Bible wildly out of context, right? And just make up a whole new religion. People do that all the time. But that's not what John is getting at here. He says, you don't need someone to teach you different things about Jesus, is what he's saying. You already have the Holy Spirit, and you know full well who Jesus is. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. There's also something else going on here which I find really interesting. There's this allusion, an Old Testament allusion, to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, he talks about how you will not need a teacher. So Jeremiah's context is the new covenant and the latter days, or in our text, the last hour. 
John is making the point that the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah's day has manifested itself here in our midst. We're living in the age to come, and it is during this time that the spirit of Antichrist begins facing its guns inward toward the church. We see this in the book of Revelation, where the unholy trinity, this dragon, this beast, and the false prophet, they seek to wreak havoc on God's people. They promise power. They promise pleasure. They promise riches and knowledge. And why do they promise these things? Why does the spirit of Antichrist promise us these things? Because he wants to draw us away from the mission that has been set before us. We saw this in the life of Jesus as he heads into the wilderness. And what happens when he heads into the wilderness? He's approached by the devil. And what does the devil do? The devil's like, just here, take these stones, turn them into bread. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Like, it's going to be great. Because what the devil's trying to do to Jesus is to say, you can have glory without suffering. It happens in the garden. What is Jesus tempted with? If this cup could pass from me, but not my will, but your will. This is the temptation that Jesus is dealing with, and it's the temptation that we deal with on a regular basis. Life could be easier. I don't have to do this. Let me just do whatever I can. I don't care about the mission of God. I'm just going to follow my own whims. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness with comfort and glory apart from suffering. He's tempted in the garden to get away from suffering. On the cross, there's two, there's two guys next to him, right? The one that says, you know, I believe in you and he will be in paradise. And then the other one's like, bro, come on, just save yourself. You're the Messiah. Jump off. You don't need to go through this. It's always the temptation to run away from suffering and get glory without suffering. And, and, I, and, and this, is, this is what the text calls us to, right? This, this worldly system is out there. It's trying to convince us that we don't need God. But the only way to glory is through Jesus. And that means we, we will suffer. That means it's going to be hard for us. But what he's setting up here for us, that this is the end. This, we're in the end, guys. It's getting nuts. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the truth. Remember what you've heard from the beginning. Remember the gospel. There's no secret Jesus you need. There's the gospel. You're not going to bypass suffering because that's not what the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to hold on tight. To hold on tight. I'm just going to read this, this, this passage in Jeremiah because it's so good. It says in verse 31, chapter 31 and following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord. I mean, that's beautiful. And that's the time we're living in. That's what John is getting at in this text, that we are living in the latter days in the last hour where we are under a new covenant, 
where God is no longer sought for in temples and in holy places, but he's found right here in our midst, in the body of Christ, indwelling us, giving us all knowledge of Jesus. God is with us. God is with us. It's the last hour. People have left you. They're denying Christ, but you are abiding in the truth of the gospel. Therefore, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God is dwelling with you, and you have eternal life. But the world's got its guns on you and wants to deceive you and wants to draw you away from the mission that he has before us. The mission to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the mission to love our neighbor as ourselves, the mission to care for the poor, the brokenhearted, the very things that God calls us to in his text. The spirit of Antichrist is saying, yeah, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. We can't be worried about the Antichrist that is coming. We need to be worried about the Antichrist that is in our midst and who is trying to deceive us, trying to draw us away from what God has called us to in Christ. We need to be, we need to be careful. We need to be aware of this, these tricks, all that's happening in the world. The text goes on, verse 28. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, like if we, can, if we were a little unsure if we were dealing with like an end times passage, like it starts off with last hour, we're talking about Antichrist, and now all of a sudden we have this second coming language coming. It's like, no, we're dealing with the end here. We're dealing with the end. But the end is long. The end is long. We're in the midst of it. It's been a while. Little children abide in him so that when he appears. Why, mu why must we abide in him? So that in order that when he appears, we might have confidence. So where do we draw our confidence? Jesus. Jesus. Again, it's like you cannot trust the world. You must trust Jesus. Trust Jesus so that when he where am I, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Who shrunk in shame at the coming of God? Remember the garden. Remember the garden. I was afraid because I knew I was naked. Who told you you were naked, Adam? The woman you gave me. It's like, oh, okay. Um, he shrinks in shame. They run into the bushes. They hide from God. Their confidence was in a fig leaf. That's what they placed their confidence in in the garden, in a fig leaf. Oh, this will work. This will cover us up. And God's like, no, no, I see right through you, bro. I see right through you. But we are clothed with Christ. Clothed with Christ. You see the difference? We don't run in shame. We don't shrink back in shame from Christ, from God our Father. We don't shrink back from God. We can approach him in confidence 
because we have been clothed with Christ. We've been clothed with Christ. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. And so this clothing that we have that is in Christ, it is what it is what our lives are sourced in, is what our lives are motivated by. It's what gives us power to live out our lives righteously before this world, loving this world. This is where we draw our confidence. This is where we draw our ability to do anything right before this world is from the clothing that we wear, from who we identify with. Do we identify with the world or do we identify with Jesus? It's a simple message that this text is getting at. And John's confident that his people are identifying with Christ because he knows that the Antichrists have gone out. And the question we need to wrestle with this morning is where does my confidence lie? Where does my confidence lie? Do I trust Jesus? Or am I trusting in this worldly system, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of light, the things I accomplish in this world, or what was accomplished in history 2,000 years ago? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the truth of your word, that the confidence we have is drawn from you, from your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for that, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.